investing in evaluation is, you shouldn't think of that as waste. That's creating incredible value because the government at the end of the day knows whether they should be expanding a service or canceling a service. It'd be a tough call for any public servant. Someone approaches you with a promising idea on how to fix a lingering problem among your constituents, whether it be homelessness or recidivism or education. And you're asked to set aside part of your budget to implement the new solution, putting the taxpayers at risk, whether it works or not. Governments of all sizes are often admonished for not getting creative about solving problems, but it's hard to blame civic leaders for taking a conservative approach with their constituents' money. But what if there was a way for governments to pilot new programs without taking on any of the financial risk of failure? What if, instead of paying up front, governments only paid for new programs after they accomplished their goals? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by HKS Professor Jeffrey Liebman, Director of the Taubman Center for State and Local Government, the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston, and the Government Performance Lab, all here at the Kennedy School. Professor Liebman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, if you brought up the term social impact bonds to just uh, your average Joe, you might be met with a glazed face. Uh, It sounds like something you might see on your 401k statement, but it's not. Can you explain just what a social impact bond is? Let me first say it's a horrible name for what it is, (laughs) because the most important thing to know about a social impact bond is that it's not a bond. It's really a contract, a we like to call it a pay for success contract, where the government says to a social service provider, uh, rather than paying you the traditional way where we pay you to deliver units of service, we are going to pay you uh, entirely or almost entirely based on the outcomes uh, that you can produce with those services uh, measured uh, against some counterfactual of what, what outcomes would have occurred uh, had the services not been delivered. Mm-hmm. And the place where the financial market comes in is that often when we write these contracts, the provider delivers services for a couple of years, then we measure outcomes for a couple of years, and then they finally get paid. Well, no social service provider or almost no social service provider can sit around for four years and have the kind of balance sheet to deliver services and wait for payments. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is private investors come in and provide the operating funds for the social service providers, which allow them to deliver the services uh, and allow them to be patient and get paid by the government if if success is achieved. So where did this idea come from? It came from uh, the UK. What happened is there was a service provider that thought it had a model that could prevent people who were coming out of jail from going back to jail. And they went to the justice ministry and said, uh, fund us. And the justice ministry said, well, you know, we have tight budgets and it's hard to come up with money. And how do we know if your thing works? And what they said was, here's the deal. Pay us based on the outcome. If it doesn't work, you don't have to pay us. It's like a money back guarantee. And so at this uh, jail in the UK in in Peterborough, uh, the the UK justice ministry wrote this contract with, uh, it was really a team of service providers uh, to try to help provide services to keep people from coming back to jail. And that was the, the, the first one of these. And then eventually the idea crossed the Atlantic. And uh, we now have uh, 11 of these that are delivering services in the United States. So can you explain the kind of areas of policy that this hits? It seems like it could be a, a 
pretty transformational way that governments run. Yes. The, it's not an accident that it started in criminal justice. Um, criminal justice has several benefits from a standpoint of setting up one of these projects. The first is the outcome we're trying to achieve is pretty clear. If we keep people from committing additional crimes and coming back to jail, we're pretty sure we've achieved success. Uh, that outcome also can be measured in existing government data. The government knows who's uh, in jail and who's not, and so mm -hmm. you don't have to spend a lot of money on, on uh, data collection. And then in the U.S. at least, it's often the uh, same level of government that that pays for the preventive service and that gets the savings because state governments, uh, or, and also in some cases a city or a county, but often state governments in the U.S. are doing these projects. They're investing in the preventative services to keep people coming from coming back to prison, and because the, those services are on the state's budget, they're the ones who benefit. We've recently been trying to apply this model in more complex situations where, for example, we're producing Medicaid savings, a portion of which goes to the state and a portion goes to the federal government, mm -hmm. and setting up those kind of partnerships is is uh, more complicated. Um, to come back to your question about other policy areas, so so the first one in the UK and then the first two in the uh, first three in the US actually were in criminal justice. We now have two homelessness projects, one in Boston and one in uh, Denver. Uh, we um, are starting to see uh, projects in uh, expanding high quality pre-K. There, there was one in Utah and one in Chicago. Uh, and uh, most recently, uh, we've announced uh, two more projects, one uh, that we did with Governor Haley's team in South Carolina um, that is uh, expanding uh, prenatal home service, uh, prenatal, prenatal home visiting services for for uh, low-income pregnant mothers, um, and also uh, there's a new one that's just getting off the ground in Connecticut uh, that is providing substance abuse treatment to families that are involved in the child welfare system where the um, the child is being maltreated and there's a risk of the child needing to be taken away from the parents and the underlying problem is, is substance abuse and if you can treat the substance abuse you can uh, we hope avoid further maltreatment and avoid the child actually having to be separated or separated for very long from the family if you were a uh, if you came up with a, an idea a public policy idea that you wanted to put into action um, do social impact bonds help you make it a reality through procuring the funds to make it happen or do they lend themselves to you know certain ideas that are uh, particularly amenable to them? yeah that's, that's a great question I think um, governments are doing this for three reasons one is it gives them a way to try new preventative services in a way that is low risk because if, it, if they don't work, there isn't going to be a cost to the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And given how tight budgets are, it's hard for government to experiment, even, even with things that have a pretty good track record. If you go to a state budget director and say, listen, you know, fund my program, he or she is going to say, that's wonderful, but I can't even afford to pay for everything we're already paying for. And this is a way to say, to keep that conversation going and to say, well, this one you're only going to have to pay for if it works and if it saves you some money down the road uh, because the preventative services uh, led to better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So so that's one benefit and one reason I, I think we see governments doing this. Uh, a second is that it, it really introduces rigorous measurement into figuring out which things work and which things don't. And today, so much of our social spending, we have just no idea whether it's effective or not. And that's another reason that a budget director might be nervous about trying something new because today you get something in the budget and it's more or less immortal. 
there suddenly becomes a constituency behind it. We never measure whether it works or not. And so it's, it's, it's there, you know, until there's some radical reform or, or, or crisis. What's different with this model is it's explicitly set up as a several year project where we're rigorously measuring the outcomes. And if they think if these things fail, um, I like to say that the taxpayers win twice. They win because they don't have to pay for the thing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they win a second time because the thing will have clearly failed and they won't keep paying for it uh, into eternity, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we, we, it'll be obvious that it didn't work and, 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 and it'll come out of the budget. Mm-hmm. So those are two reasons why governments are doing this. But there's a third that I actually think is the most important innovation here. Um, tackling tough social problems often takes sustained, multi-year, outcomes-focused collaborations between a government agency and one or more service providers. And it is really hard with traditional budgeting and traditional public sector management techniques to get an agency and providers to stay focused on re-engineering a system and improving performance for multiple years. A governor can create an interagency task force, and it's really easy to get it to meet three times. But as soon as the, the next hurricane happens or the assistant secretary turns over, mm-hmm. you know, they're on to some other priority. And budget cycles tend to be annual, and it's just, it's very hard to get keep people focused on solving a really hard problem like most of these social problems are. And what we're seeing in these um, what we're seeing in these uh, pay for success projects is they're really allowing um, the way in which government partners with the service provider to get better results to be fundamentally changed. And if it's okay, let me go into more detail about that. Um, go for it. In, in, um, let me take, for example, the, the New York State project that is uh, providing job training to people coming out of state prison. And the basic model in that project is within one week of coming out of uh, prison, we want someone in job training before they find something else to do uh, with their time. And this is being uh, done uh, the, the, with, a, with a superstar uh, service provider called CEO that's um, uh, you know, ex- expert at, at delivering this kind of job training for this population. So the, the government is using data in four different ways in this project. The first thing it's doing is it's targeting which people coming out of prison are the right ones to connect with these services. Mm -hmm. So rather than doing what we usually do and um, simply saying to a provider, go find a few hundred people to serve and it's your business to figure out who to serve and sort of we don't pay any attention and and who knows, they may find the people who are going to have good outcomes anyway, they may find the right people to serve, people may fall through the cracks. In, In this project, we are very deliberately, first of all, taking the 50% of people coming out of state prison who have the highest probability of coming back to prison based on their past criminal records. Mm-hmm. And those people are the ones that we are prioritizing for the job training because they're the ones for, for whom it's most cost effective to prevent them from coming back to, to prison. Then secondly, we're not simply saying to the provider, go find high-risk people to serve. We're actually giving them a list of uh 500 people every year who are coming out of state prison and saying, you have to serve these 500 people. You have to actually track them down, convince them to come to job training, and you're responsible for the outcomes of all of them. Hmm. So you can't just take the ones who are compliant and say they want services. You actually have to work on getting all of them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, uh, we're making sure people don't fall through the cracks in that way. And then, uh, and most importantly, we are tracking every week what percent of the people coming out of state prison actually made it to the provider. 
and you'll see the numbers. They'll be 80%, 80%, and then one week they'll be 60%, and everyone's on the phone figuring out what went wrong. And I've just never seen government work with the provider at that high frequency before. And, and you know, some weeks it's the parole officers didn't do the handoff quite right. Sometimes it was the service provider, but we're fixing the system in real time and not just, you know, three years later saying, oh, I wonder what went wrong with this program. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, that's really important. And then lastly, the fourth way that data is being used in this project is that there are more people to be s who need services than we can afford to serve in this project. And so we're using a lottery to choose which ones get service and which don't. And at the end of the project, we're comparing who got s the outcomes for the ones who did get services to the ones who didn't. And you basically get a randomized control trial for free to find out whether the intervention itself uh, works. Mm -hmm. So it's just completely different than the normal way in which we pay for social services. Hmm. So a key factor in that um, is that you're able to track all of these metrics that, uh, you know, what what is successful and what is not. Um, how, I, I imagine that costs money to um, provide that kind of analysis. Uh, does that add a certain amount of cost to each program as it's implemented? First of all, the, the cost of the evaluations in these projects has been incredibly small because we're almost always using existing government administrative data to measure the outcomes. When you think of expensive evaluations, it's because you have to go find people and administer a survey to them, and that can easily be $1,500, $2,000 a data point. And you know, you could, I've, I've done studies like that where you know, one quickly spends six, eight, ten million million on the data collection. We're not doing that in these kind of projects. The data is basically already collected for free, you need to do uh, three lines of computer code to you know, match who was in the program to the outcome data. That's, uh, I'm mm -hmm. exaggerating, it may be 50 <laughs> lines of computer code, but it's not that complicated mm -hmm. in most of these cases. And so there is a cost of hiring an evaluator because you need someone who's independent of both the government and the service provider to determine whether the thing succeeded and therefore whether the success payments should be made. But it's not a, it's not a large cost. And the, the, investing in evaluation is, you shouldn't think of that as waste that's creating incredible value because the government at the end of the day knows whether they should be expanding a service or canceling a service and getting those decisions right is really important. And if you get them wrong, the cost of that is so much higher than an evaluation. So, so can you explain uh, if you were, if you came up with an idea for a social program that you wanted to implement, um, where would you get started? Where does the money come from? Can you walk us through that? Under this model, the, the people who get funded are ones whose projects are sufficiently convincing that investors want to back them. And so it's not, you know, whether you get funded here is not, do you have the best lobbyist or the cutest uh, people to be served in your brochure? It's actually, do you have a model that either already has evidence behind it or is at least promising enough that some investors want to take the risk of, of funding the operating costs uh, and only getting repaid if the thing succeeds and the government makes, makes the success payments. So so the way you get funded is by having a promising program and ideally evidence. Mm. In practice, um, the governments that have chosen to go this route, about half of them have already known what issue area they were interested in, and they went very specifically to, say, a procurement for uh, early education services or homelessness services. And I would say about half have thought of this as uh, a way to reorient their governments toward paying on outcomes and to thinking about outcomes and to measuring outcomes and have started somewhat agnostic about which policy area to, to do it in. And many have done uh, requests for information and gotten 
you know, often three or four or five dozen responses from the public about where promising ideas are. And then from there, they've filtered those ideas down to choose the two or three that they've actually procured. So mm -hmm. that's mostly been how, how the project areas have been, have been chosen. How many programs are you piloting right now across the United States? So there are 11 of these um, that are, have reached the stage where people are actually getting helped, getting services, mm -hmm. uh, seven of which my um, government performance lab here at the Kennedy School uh, provided pro bono assistance to the government in setting up. So mm -hmm. the, the way we work is we, we work completely pro bono and completely on the government side, and um, my government innovation fellows uh, are embedded within um, the government we're helping and, and, and help them manage these uh, projects. So um, in addition, uh, we have another 12 projects that are currently in the development stage. And my guess, I can't always keep track of all the ones going on around the country that we're not involved in, but I bet there are another 12 that are that are moving pretty quickly uh, that other people are doing that we don't have any role in. And so mm -hmm. so that's roughly the magnitude of, 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 of this in the U.S. This is also being used in the U.K. The U.K. has the most of these uh, of anywhere, but they tend to be much smaller projects than the ones in the, in, in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they've started to be uh, examples of this in other countries. Australia's done a couple. There's one in India. Um, so so mm -hmm. this model is getting tested now around the world. In terms of scalability, um, you're doing this pro bono and offering a lot of support. Um, how how does this idea get beyond, uh, you know, just having the government performance lab, for instance, uh, helping to set them up? Yeah, I, I think the key question on scalability is, will one continue to be able to attract investors to these projects? Because these are fairly risky investments. If you look at the history of rigorous evaluations of social programs, a lot of programs that we thought were really promising when we rigorously evaluated them, um, the results were not so hot. And so the investors here um, are, are taking on a fair amount of risk, and most of these projects have had a mix of philanthropically-minded investors and commercial investors. And only with a mix that's partially uh, philanthropically-minded can you get people to take on uh, the level of risk that is in these projects in light of the fairly modest returns. So one, one of my... Uh, 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 associates in one, in one of these projects uh, who was cleverer than, than I am said the right way to think about these uh, is projects that give you equity risk and bond-like returns. And that's about right for, 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 for what's going on in these projects. And so I think the key question is if this increased five or tenfold, and so instead of doing five projects a year in the United States, we were doing 25 or 50, could you find uh, enough socially minded capital to keep doing these projects that are that are pretty risky, pretty innovative, and are going to generate a lot of learning, or will we only be able to fund at that scale things that are really proven? It, will it only be the second and the third projects where we've already proven that this one works that we'll be able to get enough funding for? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's that's a big open question about this um, model. I think there's also a question of can we get the um, development time down? These projects at the moment are taking a year and a half to two years to put together. If we could get this down to six to nine months, one could the scale would 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 um, you know would increase much faster. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that some people might have some discomfort over uh, the idea of bringing a profit motive into funding, um, you know, social services, which many of which do not you know have any actual uh, uh, profit uh, generation. Now it's not the the profit from this isn't coming from the actual uh, the the programs themselves. But can you explain why, uh, or or can you allay those those 
that discomfort? Yeah, I don't think of this as that part of this just isn't that unusual. The, the government often contracts with people to build bridges. And they say, when you finish building the bridge, we're going to pay you. And often the people who are building the bridge will borrow money from a bank because they need some operating funds. And they pay some interest back to the bank. And the government pays no attention to that. The government is just writing a contract that says, when you build the bridge, you get paid. Mm -hmm. And that's really all that's going on here. The government saying, if you're job training services really keep people out of prison, or if your homelessness services really uh, keep people stably housed and keep them from showing up in the emergency room 10 times a year and getting admitted four times a year and, and, and having exorbitant Medicaid costs, they're saying, we're going to pay you based on that. And exactly how the private sector is making service provision possible, you know, it's just not that unusual that, mm -hmm. that someone who was lending money is getting a rate of return for the fact that someone had to hold on to their money, you know, for a few years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that's the um, place to be worried about this model. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned before that you actually have uh, fellows embedded in, in governments. Can you explain how that model works? Sure. Basically, I hire people who are recent graduates of the Kennedy School or other similar institutions, and they uh, are put on the ground. Uh, you know, I've had someone in South Carolina. I've had someone in, someone right now is in Las Vegas. Someone else is in uh, uh, Chicago, another person is in Seattle, another person uh, is in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I have people embedded all over the country, um, and they are working full time uh, helping governments set up these pay for success projects. And the basic concept here is governments need two things to be able to do this. One is just capacity. There are plenty of smart people in government, but they are running agencies, and they their jobs are already too overwhelming. They can't take six months off to set up a complicated contract. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we're simply providing is someone who can move a project forward by one day every day. But then the second thing we're providing is the technical expertise. Many government agencies don't have in-house people who are experts on matching data, doing rigorous benefit cost analyses to figure out how much they should pay for the outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, people who can set up rigorous evaluations and 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 uh, or, or negotiate performance contracts on their side. And so my fellows are well-trained in that, and then we have senior people like me who can come in on the more technical issues. And then simply the fact that we have a network of these fellows working across the country means they can share their learning with each other uh, and back each other up. And, and so so that that's how, how, how we work. And one thing I want to emphasize is we've now uh, branched out to do a second kind of work, which is we think the same model of providing pro bono assistance to governments can help them not only set up pay-for-success projects, but actually help them spend their core dollars more wisely. And so we have a very neat project going on in Rhode Island with Governor Raimondo, where we've put um, we've put fel five fellows on the ground in, in Rhode Island working in several human service agencies, helping them um, procure their core social service uh, spend their core social service dollars yeah, in a more outcomes-focused way, um, not necessarily paying on outcomes, but at least um, paying attention to the outcomes they're trying to achieve as they think about their strategies for how to how to spend, and definitely introducing the same kind of active contract management that, that I talked about a moment ago of looking at, at in real time at how the handoffs between government and the providers of vulnerable populations are going. You know, are the people in the child welfare system who are supposed to uh, get services within four hours of an emergency actually getting those services within four hours of an emergency? And if they're not, what's wrong with the system and how do we get it fixed? Mm -hmm. And so 
um, we've expanded to try to work with governments on their course spending, uh, which, um, you know, if that work uh, succeeds, that's on a much bigger scale because a social impact bond project tends to be three to $5 million a year of services if we're helping an agency with one of those. Many of these agencies are spending 100 or $200 million a year on their core spending. And so if you can help them improve the results they're getting with that core spending, that's an even you know bigger benefit to the world. What is the future? What what comes next in social impact bonds or, or pay for success, as you call it? It's a, it's a great question. You know, I, I, think, um, I think there are two possible futures. I think one is that we keep seeing somewhere between 5 and 15 of these projects done every year in, in the U.S. They are, in particular communities, making real progress on really important social problems, and they are acting as a catalyst to show how government more broadly can um, be more outcomes-focused and, 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 and set up better mechanisms for, cal- for cooperating with providers to achieve better results. So I think one scenario is they continue to be a sort of R&D activity from which we learn and we apply lessons to, to broader government spending. I think another model is we get the transaction costs down and we get good enough at this that every state's doing 10 or 15 of these and that we suddenly have a, you know, four, instead of, instead of you know, a couple hundred million dollar uh, investment market here, we have a $4 billion market and, and um, uh, you know, and, and we see this really scale. And I think it's too early to tell which, which path uh, we're on. Well, we'll be eager to find out. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Liebman is the director of Kennedy, the Kennedy School's Government Performance Lab. You can read more about social impact bonds on their website. We'll have a link in the show notes. Professor Liebman, thanks for joining us. Great. Glad to be here. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Edwalader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Calaruso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast. PolicyCast.